Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Everybody, this is Vernon Oaks. Everything cooperative. We talk about the cooperative movement and the benefits of co-ops. And this is Women's History Month, and so we're talking about the history of women in the cooperative movement. And this day, I'm so excited that Liz Bailey is on the line with us this morning. Good morning, Liz. Good morning, Vernon. How are you today? I'm doing well. The sun's out. It's a beautiful day. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, with the sun being out there, working on 495, and there's lots and lots of traffic out there. Uh, Sorry (laughs) about that. (laughs) Okay. Um, NCBA, National Corporate Business Association, has been around for 100 years. At least we celebrated that last year, their 100th year. And it seemed like there's been a lot of activity in women's movement for about the last 100 years. It goes back into the 1700s and 1800s. But there seems to be, at least as I've tried to look over history, and and Liz, in high school, I didn't like history, but I love it now when you try to look <laughs> You're at living the it now. trends. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like women have really grown up in the cooperative movement and got a lot of leadership positions and, and, and knowledge about how to run organizations and been very active in cooperatives. Is that what you have found in your – you've been around the co-op world for a, a bit, too. Uh, not Well, I've been around it for about 15 years, and – Women play an important role, and I think it's a complicated uh, history because I think women have come to cooperatives from a variety of different perspectives. Uh, And I think in some cases it has been a job that has led to more involvement. Co-ops tend to create passion, and I think people exposed to it then get that kind of grounding. Uh, Other women, I think, have come to it where they are activists, and they see co-ops as a way to meet a need that isn't met somewhere in the marketplace. And then in other places, I think it's an economics issue where women in earlier years, a lot of them were actively involved in co-ops as a spouse in a family where they were looking for some of the traditional uh, support systems that go into family, like the you know the needs of children, uh, the access to food, and that co-ops there too became a way to do it. And in other cases, uh, a couple decided to form a business, and it became a co-op. And so there, I think women have come to it in a lot of different ways, also as educators, where they've seen it as a business model that works in a lot of places. Women's role has been a diverse one, and definitely women have made a big contribution. So let's talk about some of these categories. You just said a mouthful. Can you give us some idea that women have worked in organizations for advocacy or they they wanted to, I don't know, have housing or? Okay, sure. Um, advocacy is a really good one where it has been uh, unmet needs where there maybe is an injustice and access to housing, access to healthy foods, uh, equal justice, 
cooperatives were have been very important in the South as well, and women have played a role in all of those. I think in housing, an area that you know fairly well, uh, a good example are, are is Eva Rappaport out of the New York area where she and her husband, Charles, actually, the two of them are in the Cooperative Hall of Fame, and they're there for what they did in terms of years of working as advocates for affordable housing and co-op housing in the New York City area. And then they also became national leaders of the National Association of Housing Cooperatives and lent their their skills in advocacy and organization and all to moving that agenda to for affordable housing, not just in New York State, but also then within the, the national area. Another good example, this one from early history, Catherine Whiteside-Taylor, who is considered the real founder of Cooperative Preschool International, which is not just a U.S., but a Canadian, uh, North American uh, organization. Her work in early childhood development saw the need for Cooperative Preschool, where parents became involved, Then, and in, in women, in many cases, again, it was a, a role for women. And she got very involved in that, uh, helped to create the uh, leadership there, and along with Rebecca Allen, also a later person in the cooperative preschool area, Rebecca Allen, along with Catherine Whiteside-Taylor, were influential in a lot of the uh, development of preschool education, even outside the cooperative area, uh, Rebecca Allen being one of the, um, the early people in the Head Start program, where one of its key distinctions is that family parents are involved in the uh, decisions and the development of their children through Head Start, so brought co-op principles really into that program. So preschool, Head Start, is that also daycare centers? Uh, cooperative daycare, yeah, that would be, be part of that. I mean, there's daycare uh, in this area, in the Washington, D.C. area, and also uh, around the country. There are a number of preschools that are operated, licensed, and operated as uh, parent-centric, uh, where the parents are volunteers in the system. And so in where you have a parent that can put that time into it, uh, women often have played that role, and it becomes in a way for them to to be involved in their, their child's education with a heavy-duty commitment. It's a co-op, basically, so it has all of those kinds of parental decision-making, parental time spent in the, in the delivery of the service and all of that. But yeah, it is another form of, of daycare, basically. Well, I know we have one in Greenbelt, and there's one in Southwest, on Capitol Hill, I think they call it Capitol Hill. And I visited yeah. one in Capitol Hill, and I was surprised, pleased, that there were a couple of fathers there volunteering. Oh, that's uh, terrific. So, yeah. There are a number of them out the um, the Washington Dulles Corridor, I think, too, out where there are a number of young families. Uh, there have been several long-standing co-op preschools out there as well. But in, you know, once you got into a situation where where both parents were working, it became a more difficult situation to deal with. So that I think that has stymied somewhat the uh, the further growth of the cooperative preschool. Even though there are plenty of parents who would dearly love to be more involved at that level in their kids' uh, development too. Another area where I think women have taken leadership roles in the the food area. Robin Schrader heads up the National Cooperative Grocers. 
which are food co-ops that are a co-op around the country. And you find you have a lot of women who are advocates and are managers within that realm, too, of the food cooperative community. Again, this one is somewhat an outgrowth, again, of women having in their traditional roles within families of being the primary one for education of the children uh, and also with the the family business side of things, uh, would become members of of food buying clubs, the precursors to food co-ops. And one interesting tidbit from the Washington areas is when uh, Joan and Fritz Mondale, uh, when he was in the Senate, they lived in Washington. Joan Mondale was the organizer of a food buying club in their neighborhood in northwest Washington so that a number of families could, could again, they were living on a Senate salary, and so she was looking for ways to economize. And so a food buying club became one of the ways that they achieved that, and they and their neighbors were were involved in that. So they brought their, their co-op roots from Minnesota to to Washington, D.C., and became involved in food buying clubs, which now today are less common than food co-ops. So we've evolved in that world and grown it into a sector where there are a number of very thriving food cooperatives that don't take on quite that that neighborhood dimension that a, a buying club did initially. But, but that was really the, the, uh, the growth of the co-op principle out of that. But when I joined my church, we had a food buying club. This goes back 25 years. And we had a, a different problem, <laughs> Liz. The problem was, first off, we got a lot of food for a little bit of money. It was mainly fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. But for a family of four, it was too much. We, could not, we couldn't oh. eat it at all <laughs> in the time frame between. So we tried to find another family to go in together. So it was, it was, it was a great problem to have. <laughs> it <Yeah>. was a <laughs> different problem. Well, now you see the benefit of having a food co-op now where you can pick and choose the the amount that you get. And within that, going back into that food co-op area, you then have women leaders who have risen there through uh, a number of the most successful managers of food cooperatives are women. And also within the development world, uh, you have examples of, I say, Marilyn Scholl, uh, has the cooperative development services out of uh, New England, but they're cooperative development advisors to food co-ops and, and groups that are wanting to form food co-ops. And she's the manager of that uh, very important educational and development organization. You have people like Anya First, who heads up the Blooming Prairie Foundation out of the Twin Cities, which is an outgrowth of a, of a purchasing cooperative that was part of, of the food co-op world. She manages the um, food food co-ops in Madison, Wisconsin, the Woolley Street Market, and chairs the uh, Blooming Prairie Foundation. Lots of leadership there, lots of expertise, and and a fair number of women as as the management of food cooperatives all over the country. So, when you say advocacy, what do you mean by advocacy? Uh, it would be development of it was well, several pronged on advocacy on a number of levels. One is sheer education. A lot of people, as you and I know, that the knowledge about uh, co-op is something that we're striving to do a better job at, and that advocacy in many ways is is making people aware of what a co-op is and how it can play a role in their lives. So advocacy is is 
that to some extent. It's also at, say, the national level, it would be uh, being the advocate for co-ops in the government arena, in making sure that other that regulations or legislation or whatever might impact the business of the co-op is taken care of. And there you get advocacy from organizations like NCBA, which has one of its primary functions is to play that role for the cross-sector cooperative world. It's currently led by a woman, uh, Judy Zewatz, who was with NCBA at an earlier point, too, where she was leading up the staff support for a rural development task force that NCBA did back in the 1990s. And as advocates then for co-ops, they created the Rural Cooperative Development Grant Program uh, proposal that then was was passed by the Congress, is appropriated, and today is the primary source of development funding for a network of cooperative development centers all over the country. Many of them also, I will point out, have women as their, their executive directors. But uh, Judy staffed that back at the time that, that uh, the RCDG program, as it's known today, was put into law and really serves as really the only, the primary place where cooperative development uh, is funded by the federal government. And it's in a, a relatively modest grant program, but it is a, it's created a foundation and Liz, advocacy to get that program Liz, together. I'm sorry, but we've got to take our first break. You've got a lot of information. I'm loving okay. it. I, I don't want to stop you, but we've got to take our first break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks with Everything Cooperative. Information is power, and we have Liz Bailey on the line with us this morning, giving us information about women in the cooperative movement. And hopefully other women out there that listen, you may find a place for you. We were talking about advocacy organizations, uh, Eva Rappaport with NAHC, Catherine White, uh, Cy Taylor in preschool education, Judy Zigwick and the uh, NCBA, and Robin Shader, the right. National Corporate Grocers. Okay. One that, that we didn't get to before the break that is an important new group of advocates is around the worker cooperative community, which is is a rel- is the newest of the co-op sectors, and it is it is thriving right now with a lot of young people, especially interested in in forming their own businesses. And worker cooperatives have needed then the advocates who can can both uh, attract some foundation funding to do some of the economic research on how best to organize worker cooperatives and connect them to communities and their needs, and also just to make sure people are aware of what value there is there. And there you have several key women who have been leaders there. One is uh, Melissa Hoover, who was the first executive director of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives that was created within the last decade. She now heads up the Democracy at Work Institute, which is their nonprofit affiliate. And one of the people who did enormous work in laying the groundwork for her, one of the biggest supporters of worker cooperatives, Dr. Jessica Gordon-Emhart, who was inducted last year into the Cooperative Hall of Fame. And she's a noted scholar. She's a community organizer. And she's she's just a passionate advocate for worker-owned businesses as a, a form of economic justice. So Jessica has been part of that as well. 
And I just got to put a shout out for her book, Collective Carriage. Uh, it's a great history on African-American and the cooperative movement and, and how that has been through the last 100, 150 years. Yeah, it's, an, it's a fantastic book. So this is advocacy, and you had mentioned at least five or six different areas. What about the cooperative development, women in developing cooperatives, or this whole movement? You know, that's where, where the rubber meets the road, and it's where in communities where we're both growing new co-ops, but they're also helping existing co-ops to manage better, to be sustainable by upping their game, whatever. And there again, women have been playing a phenomenally important role. These centers, many of them are really a result of that RCDG program, which we talked about, the Rural Cooperative Development Grant Program, which has provided seed money to most of these centers. And and hopefully someday there will be a 50-state strategy where there will be centers everywhere. But for now, there's a cluster of of, uh, 30 to 50 centers and various stages of of work that they're doing around the country. And women who are leaders in that, Deb Troca runs the uh, Indiana Cooperative Development Center with a background in small business development and now has become just really powerful in in the Midwest with the Indiana Center. Margaret Lund from uh, the Minnesota area works around the country now as a um, partner and a developer of proposals for groups to, to really get funding. She's a specialist a lot in the worker cooperative world. Kim Kuntz in California has been running the the California Center for a number of years, and she has a co-op housing background as well as a uh, co-op health care and home care as some of their areas of expertise. But they've also now all developed regional conferences where they can bring in people who are interested in what a co-op is and how they might be able to be organizing them so that they're, they're actually being a magnet to bring people in. And then you have in the South, you have uh, Melba Smith, who is a, a legendary in Mississippi as a co-op developer in the rural parts of the state. Uh, she's part of the network of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is also producing another Hall of Fame uh, inductee this year, Carol Zippert, who's been working with her husband, John, out of their uh, Alabama base, but doing grassroots organizing of credit unions and agriculture cooperatives you know, where there there really is a, just a, an incredible need. And along with them, Shirley Sherrod, who also is in the uh, Cooperative Hall of Fame, she, along with her husband Charles, have devoted their lives to cooperative development and community development, uh, primarily in Georgia. And she, for a while, was the uh, the Georgia State Director for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and then also was affiliated with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. So these are powerful women who have been part of setting the agenda for development in many different parts of the region. There is now a cluster of women in the, the Northeast Corridor who are developing similar kinds of strong programs. Noemi Gilsbank with the Cooperative Development uh, Institute out of Massachusetts. They have been doing a huge amount of work converting mobile home parks to cooperative communities and really have, have just done a fabulous job there. So these are women 
you're translating real needs people have into cooperative solutions. Fantastic. You know, Melba Smith was on the show last week, and she is oh, really? awesome, yes. Yeah. And I've been trying to get Shirley Sherrard on. Uh, unfortunately, Charles has dementia now, and she spends a lot of time caretaking for him and uh-huh. the other things that she's doing, so I haven't been able to get her on. But Deborah Trocha has Trocha. been on. Kim Koontz has been on the show. Judy, I always have trouble with Zig White. Zig Watts. And Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhot has been on um, two or three times because she this the book that she's written has so much information in it. We mm-hmm. could probably have her on for two months. She has a lot of data. <laughs> but she's also an educator, and so it seems like women have been very strong on the education side. You had mentioned that earlier on and sort of places that women have come into the cooperative world. So can you tell us some of the women that you know about in this whole educational side of the world? Well, the two that stand out as well, and there are others from the past, like Catherine Whiteside Taylor was an educator as well, and that became the basis for her work. And I think over over the years, that has been part of what what um, has driven people into cooperatives as they do their work. Anne Hoyt is currently uh, just recently retired from the University of Wisconsin Center for Cooperatives, uh, she did a number of did a lot of work on um, urban cooperative development as well as as the uh, leadership uh, with the Center for Cooperatives, where they're doing a lot of work with both agricultural and non-agricultural cooperatives. Ann Reynolds currently heads up the uh, center there in in Madison at the University of Wisconsin, and she's been working closely with the, uh, while they're doing academic work, they're doing research studies, case studies that are, are becoming the, um, the, the foundation for a lot of, of uh, new organizations and new foundations, even looking at co-op as, a, as an economic model. She's very involved in the work that the city of Madison is doing with Mayor Paul Soglin. They're committed to worker cooperatives being developed within Madison. They've made like a five-year, million-dollar-a-year commitment to cooperative development around worker cooperatives. And so Anne has that opportunity to be both town and gown in a way where she's she's doing the work that, that is part of the center's work, but then is also intimately involved in what's going on in that area. There's a whole research division of U.S. Department of Agriculture that supports a nationwide uh, number of women who are not just women, all researchers, but I know a number of them would be women uh, who are doing work on university campuses all over the country with USDA-supported research and then they they also then provide the organizational ability for them to come together and compare their their work. But that's you know academic research. Much of it may be around the agricultural cooperative sector, but broader than that, it would be about cooperative management, cooperative you know all the different kind of skill sets that that are part of running a business and running a, what makes cooperative businesses different. You know the the research uh, wasn't about five years ago that. The University of Wisconsin looked at the economic impact of cooperatives throughout the U.S. Was that yeah. done there? It's really amazing that for so many years there was only anecdotal evidence of cooperatives in the economy. You know, we now know that there are thousands of cooperatives out there and their economic impact. But until 
that research that was funded partly by the cooperative sector, but also it it was then a match with federal dollars that was uh, done at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. They actually did the head count to figure out how many co-ops there were so that you could actually go to the Hill and make a case for cooperatives based on something other than a personal anecdote. And as much as I'm a believer that storytelling is how you will get somebody's attention, you also need the data that gives you the the power to show that it's not just an isolated incident, but that it's representative of, of something much more. And that's what that research has been able to do is lay that groundwork. Now, right now, there's there's a move to try to get equally uh, cooperatives added into the U.S. Census questionnaire so that there will be another place to gather data that will be, you know, government data generated, not not funded by any one particular group so that you then you know, worry about is it really a, a true true view, but it's, it would be in the census gathering process itself. We're taking our second break. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM WOS and 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks with Everything Cooperative. It's Liz Bailey is our guest today. And Liz has just given us a lot of information. And Liz, I've got to apologize to you. When we get ready for the breaks, I'm not setting it up because I'm so engrossed in what you're telling me. <laughs> it's Quite phenomenal. All right. uh, so uh, what, one of the major problems with starting any business is getting the capital, getting the money. Uh, so do you have some examples of women that have helped in the cooperative world and getting funds together so people can either start a co-op or expand their business? Absolutely. One of the, uh, one of the as we know, one of the, the pipeline problems we've got with new cooperative development is finding that startup capital. And one of the things the cooperative community has been blessed with is a growing group of cooperative financial organizations, and most of them are CDFIs, Cooperative Development Financial Institutions, so they leverage dollars out of the CDFI fund for for their lending. Uh, some, like the National Cooperative Bank, um, are not a CDFI, but then have ways to support CDFIs with with some of their joint programming and, and lending, uh, lending to them. But women are playing a, a key role in all of these areas. And uh, Ann Fedorchek is running the, the specialty finance section at National Cooperative Bank, which is the primary place where the cooperative uh, mission work and, and cooperative development support comes out of. But then there are several organizations specifically that that have women as the, uh, the leaders and, and, you know, Women are on boards of all these organizations, too, but uh, someone who's been particularly a pioneer has been Rebecca Dunn with the Cooperative Fund of New England, and in her work, she was one of the early organizations to uh, apply for certification with the CDFI fund, which is a big deal in in terms of, of being a lender and having uh, the hoops to go through, and once you get CDFI funding, the the key thing to understand is you don't just get government grants. You then have an obligation to match dollar for dollar every dollar you get from the federal government. So 
the enormous ability to find other sources of funding to supplement that is huge. And Rebecca's just done a yeoman's job of growing the Cooperative Fund of New England. Uh, even though its name is New England and its its territory is is the New England footprint, uh, she's just had a national impact. She became the first cooperative lender to qualify with SBA's um, intermediary relending program several years ago, so became the first source back when co-ops were barely getting any funding from SBA guaranteed lending. It was Rebecca who had the the organization which, with a track record. She qualified for this and was able to get SBA lending dollars to then use for worker co-op um, lending, for housing co-op lending, some of the projects that they were, were working on. She became also one of our, our passionate advocates as we were working with SBA to remove the restrictions they've had on lending to food cooperatives, which we've achieved a, a big victory there, but still not completely where we'd like it, but uh, room to work on it. And Rebecca was important to, to all of that. She's also in the Co-op Hall of Fame. Um, another person who's a, a real leader is Christina Jennings out of the Twin Cities. Uh, it used to be North Country was was. People might know of her through that. They've renamed themselves to Shared Capital, and they are are robustly lending around the country for worker co-ops, food co-ops, uh, others. And these these women too have been networking, as women do a very good job of networking and finding ways that they can partner on some deals where one will take one part of it, another a, a different part, and they're able to make a deal happen because they're collaborating and working together on it. Mm. And that is powerful, particularly when money is so hard to get to know some of these people. And, yeah. Uh, I, I, I have not seen, but would like to, if I'm thinking as I meet people, maybe putting together a resource manual. Do you know where there's a resource manual for cooperatives like this lending or how you can get, um, uh, you know, knowledge on how to run a co-op or how to make decisions? There there are a lot of those resources out there. Almost every cooperative organization, if they've got a website, they'll have a how-to section. Uh, One thing co-ops are very good at and, you know this too from the educational focus that they have in the seven co-op principles is they have a lot of information that they generate um, on paper and online on how to do it. And then there are a lot of workshops too. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say there's any one single source, but I think depending on the topic that you want, actually one on worker co-ops that's a relatively new player and a really good thorough resource is Democracy at Work Institute, DAWI, D-A-W-I dot co-op, they have a really good resources section that's that's a good starting point, uh, mainly about worker cooperatives, but somewhat broader, too. Um, they're just any, you name it, there's a group that will have some really good information on, on what's a co-op, how to start a co-op. And as much as people are trying to come up with the single resource, so far that just doesn't exist. And you've mentioned the fifth principle of the seven cooperative principles that I like the most. That was the first thing that I was drawn to was education, uh, training, and information. That That is a core principle. It's consistently in 
And Dr. Jessica Gordon Emhart said in her book, when what she found out was when co-ops started having trouble, they would go back to what they were called study bees. And they would go back to the training when, to, to figure out how to get out of trouble, how to solve any particular problem. So education is critical. Uh, and again, that's why I like, I'm a, I, I run a, a, I'm an entrepreneur and run a business, but I'm really a closet educator, if you really <laughs> want to know. <laughs> you know, you, early on you asked about you know, women and what draws them into leadership and cooperatives. Oh, and yeah. I think part of it is that if you're involved in your own co-op, you have that opportunity to learn leadership just by being a member, but then you also have access to resources, and co-ops, I think, are particularly good at growing their members, and they then can assume more positions of more leadership uh, by virtue of what they have learned by being a member. It's not a passive kind of role, and there's that wonderful opportunity to learn as you go. Well, one of the things I, I experienced at the National Association of Housing Co-ops at their annual meetings and then as I've been in this radio program, Liz, this is three and a half years now we've been doing this program. Wow. So I've gotten to go to other, like the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops. I went to Cincinnati for uh, a worker cooperative, uh, not U.S. Federation of Southern Cooperatives. I went to their conference. I've been mm-hmm. to other conferences. And the education people freely give knowledge. It's sort of like not hold back, not say we're competitors. and But it, this whole sort of sense of, let me show you what I've learned, and when I've had the problem you've had, this is how I solved it. That's right. Yeah, that's <clears throat> that's very much the case. It's um, it's it's co-ops. It's another co-op principle: co-ops helping co-ops. And you find that mentoring role is being something that's in practice all the time. Yeah, that's the sixth one, and I uh, I didn't get that one until later on. Uh, but particularly when in housing co-ops, how the credit unions can help the housing co-ops and how the housing co-ops can put their monies in credit unions and helping each other to, mm-hmm. to grow. Um, Absolutely. So, okay, so we have educators and we have lenders, we have developers, we have advocates. Um, and you had mentioned about six of them. Uh, another another area that, that – um, I think is important too is co-op philanthropy, where there have again there are not uh, there are a number of of co-ops will have some funding that they give to their members in their communities, but then there's there are organizations and not enough of them. There are never enough philanthropic organizations, but there are some that have more of a national focus. Uh, credit Union National Credit Union Foundation being one for the credit union community has has played a powerful role there, and Gigi Highland is the executive director there. She's she, you know, another case of a, a woman who came, grew up in the credit union world and now has that leadership role. <clears throat> another is the Cooperative Development Foundation, which um, I was privileged to be part of for some time and now is led by Leslie Mead, and it's the um, foundation affiliated with NCBA CLUSA. And they're doing some marvelous work as well with, again, nobody's got enough money to give out to really make the big difference, but a lot of seed money and and support for uh, programming related to food co-op education or uh, seniors and home care solutions for seniors, trying to develop that model uh, so that there are philanthropic opportunities that, again, there are the players right now that are, are the leaders uh, tend to be women. 
Can you give me a couple examples? Because I've used a CDF uh, as when I've had people call in and say where they can go get money. They have about six funds, now five or six funds that they either loan money out or give out grant monies. And I know one is with the food co-ops. They help, they've help they've, they've um, consolidated their funds to some extent. So it's uh, there aren't quite as many individual funds as they used to have. But they do have one in particular that is for food co-op development, the Howard Bowers Fund, which um, is primarily education-focused, and it will be small, modest grants to start up food co-ops or existing uh, co-ops that would relate to uh, their expansion and and things they need and educational resources that, that they may want to develop. In the lending field, the only place they've done lending has been in the housing cooperative world, and there they have done a number of, historically they've done a number of of uh, loans to, it's a revolving loan fund, so that they would do, say, a senior housing cooperative uh, development loan that they would then get the money paid back as the organization qualified for conventional financing so that CDF was able to give them that kind of a bridge. And in one particular case, it merges into our topic for today of women is there's a couple from the Thornwaite, Fred and Virginia Thornwaite from the Detroit area. They're in the Cooperative Hall of Fame. They're a couple who decided that, you know, he worked on egg co-op. They decided that they, there were more opportunities for co-op that they could see. They formed a co-op optical uh, company or co-op in the Detroit area, but then they moved into housing. And Cooperative Services, Inc., which now is a still Detroit area-based, but they have senior housing buildings in the Baltimore area of Michigan, other states, too. Some of their lending that they've they've gotten pre-development funding from CDF for some of the uh, the housing cooperatives, the, the Thornweights have passed, but the legacy they've left has been a uh, network of, of senior housing projects that uh, are not co-ops technically, but they're managed as co-ops so that you're getting all that benefit of member engagement. So it was, uh, you know, it's a, it's a merger. CDF helped make some of that happen, but the Thornweights were, were really, you know, visionary people in senior housing. Well, in a minute, we're going to take our last break. Uh, so I'm going to give you a little headway this time. Okay. <laughs> um, and then I want to come back and talk about how women have worked, the example you just gave, but there's other women that have worked with their spouses in partnership in developing co-ops. Um, and um, just really why why this has been so helpful for women. Is there is there anything in particular that, I don't know, in women's DNA where they, I don't know, cooperate better because they are nurturing with their children, or and so they end up, you know, I don't know, learning how early age how to work with each other to get something done, and men more often perhaps out there with a bow and arrow or something trying to trying to get a uh, get food that they might be doing it individually. So I mean, is well, there some way? I think you know women are probably you know we always have the the joke that women will shop around for for options whereas men will buy the first thing on the shelf. Um, we're we're going to take the break and come right back with that oh. one, the shopping part. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back. 
Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, 95.9 FM. Information is power. This is why the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program, to give you the information that you need to learn about cooperatives so you'd have power if you use that information. NCB's mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and becoming an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members placing special emphasis, special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. And more often than not, those economically challenged communities are rural communities or communities of color. So NCB has a tremendous mission, and they do an extremely, extremely good job uh, in that. So we were talking about the difference, Ms. Liz Bailey, uh, between women and men and cooperating, and you were using that shopping example, which I'm curious. So let's go back to that. <laughs> Well, I think women might oftentimes look for for more choices, and I think you get into, you know, buying clubs or finding solutions in some sectors. I think women have probably taken a primary role there that may have more to do with some of those inclinations that that women have more patience for for looking for that that bargain uh, than men. But, But I don't want to minimize at all. There are extraordinary men and extraordinary women who are doing work in cooperatives. And I think in some cases, the women who have risen to the the visibility of being the leaders have to just taken advantages of the, of what the co-op um, does in terms of its leadership development. If they've grown up within co-ops in other cases, women have come to the jobs um, that were not necessarily, they weren't driven to it because it was a co-op. It was a good job opportunity. And then they have developed the interest in co-op and become passionate about it. And that has then propelled them into uh, another level. And also that women's career choices in some cases are are in those advocacy development uh, kinds of, of areas that uh, men are there as well, but that women maybe are... Um, you know, gravitating towards co-op um, <clears throat> more than others. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's. I would say there is not anything in the DNA that makes women any more um, good at co-op than men are. I think it's a matter of of what it is that people value, and I think mm-hmm. that that's equally shared by both sexes. And uh, and women will be, I think, have the opportunities now to to um, to excel in ways that men have as well. I mean, some of the early stories, as we were saying, of women who are in the Hall of Fame as partners with their husbands, in many cases, they were as powerful a player as as the man, but you often didn't have women by themselves in the Cooperative Hall of Fame from the early years. They were partners in a business development uh, that was a family enterprise. A um, good example is the Andersons, uh, who founded REI back in 1938. Uh, Lloyd and Mary Anderson, they did it out of their living room in Seattle. And REI today is you know, a huge consumer cooperative. That wasn't one where they, they picked and chose who did what. And I think the uh, the Rappaports were similarly. Well, well, we just got a, a REI store here in D.C. Right, right, Last one year. of their big ones. And you know, and that's that's an example. And they they tell me that the Andersons' portrait still hangs in the 
you know, in the the main lobby of REI in Seattle, so that their their founders, you know, they're they're proud of their founders who started in their living room. Uh, you know, the Rappaport is out of your world of housing cooperatives. They were advocates. They did it out of their living room as well. They did not have a place to do it other than there. Um, Carol and John Zippert, who are are going to be uh, inducted in the Cooperative Hall of Fame. John had his part of co-op. Carol had her part of co-op, and they both came together and were doing things that collectively were doing uh, were, were adding value for the communities and where they served and the work of the federation. Um, Kate Sumberg and Walden Swanson, two um, yuppies, age <laughs> folks, who have made just an enormous contribution through their metrics and their analysis and their financial management, primarily in the food cooperative world, and they did it as a partnership. They've been strategic thinkers, and uh, you know they they both bring something to it as a as a couple, and we're better for it. Um, there's there's another interesting example from from back in the 1960s where a couple Dorothy and George Jacobson and they're in the Cooperative Hall of Fame and it was in the time period I believe when maybe um, Orville Freeman was Secretary of Agriculture because there's a Minnesota connection they were actively involved uh, she is an economist he is a cooperative developer back in the Midwest she helped to get the law changed in Wisconsin for uh, co-op to be taught in the school system. Mm. She then wrote the book to support that for curriculum. They moved to the to Washington, and she became uh, the first. She worked on the Food for Peace program, and she became the Assistant Secretary of Agriculture for International Affairs. While he went to USAID and worked, both of them doing cooperative work even there. So that they had very different careers, and yet they, while they were in Minnesota before they came to Washington, they helped found health uh, cooperative that I think may have been part of the beginnings of Health Partners, which is today a major uh, health cooperative in the Twin Cities area. So you have these, you know, these wonderful stories of people who have connected as couples, uh, and taking nothing away from either one of them, that they each brought something pretty powerful to it. Uh, so that, And that continues to go on today. What about Stanley and Gloria Kuhn? Stanley and Gloria are a wonderful pair who have uh, worked all over the world, Central America, Africa. Uh, they have both gone. Stanley has been there primarily for NCBA CLUSA doing country leadership for cooperative development projects, but they also were working with the World Council of Credit Unions in Africa. And as a couple, they have gone, and Gloria has worked on the community basis of helping to educate community members for uh, what it is to be, be part of a cooperative and what value there is. A lot of the places they've worked have been dangerous, and they have gone in there as a couple supporting each other and done just a marvelous job internationally well internationally speaking of internationally i had uh, dame pauline green on this show who was was the, she's the media past president of ica international cooperative alliance that's right and uh one of the things that she said on a program which i remember so well is that co-ops help people come out of poverty with dignity and i really like that quote 
Um, and but right now she's been replaced by a woman. She has Monique Larue, who was uh, the head of of um, major Canadian cooperative um, uh, Desjardins, is now the new president of ICA, and is providing leadership there too as as uh, ICA takes a, its more worldwide mission. So there is a, a strong. She's a powerful. Um, head of Desjardins as well, so that she's uh, brings a very solid business background to to the ICA agenda. So there is uh, yet another talented woman. Well, we could talk about a lot more, and we we don't have a whole bunch more time. But I wanted to talk about one particular woman in the cooperative world. When I was a president of the National Association of Housing Co-op, I gave her the presidential award because she had set up. Uh, brought 150 cooperatives to the White House for White House briefing in 2012, and her name is Liz Bailey. So I don't want you to forget you, okay? (laughs) (laughs) To be able to put that together, and I was thinking, I was fortunate enough to be there, and I was at awe at at the number of people that was in the room and the kinds of uh, interactions between the White House staffers, White House staffers. I was hoping that President Obama would have shown up. I was hoping on top of hope, but he was somewhere else out of the city. So um, it was just wonderful, and I just really applaud you for putting that together. Well, thank you. must not have been easy. There must have been a lot of work. Well, we're always fighting. One thing with the cooperative world in the public policy arena is there's an immediate default to agriculture. U.S. Department of Agriculture is a wonderful advocate for cooperatives, and they have they are now running the interagency coordinating council that was set up by statute. Uh, but one thing that that White House meeting we were trying to achieve was to not have it just be about agriculture and to really demonstrate that cooperatives are in every sector of the economy and that we were able to bring that kind of mixture of people to the White House for them to be able to to witness just how diverse the cooperative sector is and not to just think of, well, if it's co-op, let's put egg in charge. Um, we really wanted to, to have that kind of cross-sector. Um, and I think the Interagency Coordinating Council is helping to make that legacy last. And we, we hope that in this new administration that that, uh, that council will continue to, to meet and will continue to bring people from the other federal agencies to uh, to the table where they can learn about co-op. I mean, one of the, the things we felt was U.S. Department of Agriculture was carrying the burden for whatever support there was for co-op and that we knew there were opportunities in other federal agencies for their programming to also benefit from cooperatives and that they resources that they had for programming could also be used for cooperatives that were now only maybe eligible through USDA funding. So we uh, we hope that that continues and you know it's going to be if the president's budget is you know is taken seriously or there's a lot in the president's budget as proposed that would make it difficult for cooperative development to continue the way it has. So I'm, I there'll be a lot of debate and and a lot of uh, work to be done, but it's a good grassroots uh, kind of, of development that we hope that we can, can preserve Liz, for the future. 
thank you for all that you do and have done. It's wonderful, and it's wonderful working with you. We're out of time. <laughs> so, well, thanks, Vernon. It was, it's been fun. It's been fun. Thank you so very much. And everybody out there, please have a wonderful week and work cooperatively, and we'll see you next Thursday. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W.O.S. And